I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 66 of Talking Golf History. It's rare that I open with someone else's words, but how can I improve upon the words of Dr. William Healy, author of The History of the Hyannisport Club? A quote from his book, The golf course at the Hyannisport Club is a spectacular seaside links, which was built for seasonal recreational play, and the golf course has evolved as a challenging test of golf, which is suitable for championship competition. The remarkable heritage of Hyannisport includes John Reed, one of the founders of the United States Golf Association, Alex Finlay, one of the earliest golf course architects in America, and Donald Ross, perhaps the finest golf course architect in America. Reed was a founding member of Hyannisport, and it is likely that he designed the first six-hole course in 1897. Finlay redesigned the original nine-hole course in 1902, and several of his golf holes are played today. Ross redesigned the existing 18-hole golf course in 1930, from a mundane golf course on 100 acres to its current challenging links on a 140-acre property. Hyannisport may be the only golf course in America which was touched by these three fathers of American golf. Our show today is a collaboration between the Society of Golf Historians, the Donald Ross Society, Story Lounge Film Company, and Talking Golf History. We are joined by Tom Colombo, the Hyannis Sport Club Superintendent and Resident Golf Historian, Dr. William Healy, Golf Historian and Author of The History of the Hyannis Sport Club, Ron Force, Golf Course Architect, and Vaughn Halyard of the Story Lounge Film Company. Without further ado, let's jump right into our show. Today on our show, we're going to do a deep dive into the fascinating history of the Hyannis Sport Club on Cape Cod. We are joined by historians Tom Colombo, Dr. William Healy, and golf course architect Ron Force. Gentlemen, thank you for joining the Talking Golf History podcast. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. The history of Cape Cod is fascinating. Equally so, the history of the Hyannis Sport Club. How did the Hyannis Sport Club come about in 1897? Well, the first thing I can say is after 123 years of excellence as a golf and social club, the club decided to um, record their history for the first time, which is pretty remarkable given the, uh, the legendary status of this club. In 1888, St. Andrew's Golf Club was founded down in Yonkers, New York. John Reed was the man who laid out those three holes. And then in 1894, John Reed became uh, one of the founders of the USGA. John Reed uh, fell in love with Liz Mudge. And Liz Mudge was from Pittsburgh, and the Mudge family would come here summers. And 
when um, when he was raising a family, John Reed came here summers, and he was known for his singing in the uh, in, in the choir down at the Union Chapel. But that being said, he was a golfer at heart. He was a Scotsman, and he wanted to play golf in his summer community with uh, a Reverend Slack and Dr. Joseph um, Herrick. Uh, they decided to form a club in 1897. And that summer, they laid out a uh, six-hole golf course uh, just below the current clubhouse. That, um, that was a, a home run. A lot of people played. And they changed the course of that routing several times. And in 1899, things were going so well, they built a, a clubhouse. And when they built that clubhouse, it became the social center of Hyannisport. And they, in 1898 and 1899, built three tennis courts. So the Hyannisport Club became the golf and tennis recreational facility for the village of Hyannisport and a few people around the Hyannis area. So that's how this got started. And um, 1897 was the start. A six-hole golf course was the start. And then it evolved. Do we know anything about Reed's Lane out of the course? Like, do we know anything about the early layout, where it was, how long it was, any of the particulars there? We think we know a lot, but the key word there is think, because in any of these historical uh, data searches, uh, we use multiple points of information. Tom Colombo, Fred Sergula, the historian for the club, they were fantastic. I went to um, uh, electronic online files at the Sturgis Library and reports from uh, the Barnstable Patriot and the Hannes Patriot and the Yarmouth Register. And we had a little bit of information at the club, but not as much as perhaps um, we would have liked. The, the archives were relatively um, uh, slim or minimal. So we did come up with a routing, and uh, we, um, we put it in the Hyannisport book. It is a routing uh, down the hill, which is currently the 18th hole, and then you uh, have a short hole over to what is currently the 16th green, and then they had a hole uphill onto what is currently the practice range. And then they had a downhill hole to what is currently the second green. And then a hole off towards Marchant's Mill Way, which would be the fifth hole. And then the sixth hole came back, and it was right in front of the clubhouse, which is the same site as the current clubhouse. And that was their original six-hole routing. That's fantastic. So John Reed's design, it really only lasted about five years before the first renovation in 1902. Who redesigned Hyannisport? Well, that, that, that's, that's a, I have to fix the dates a little bit. In, 19, yeah. in 1901, the club got access to more land across, uh, across the marsh and, and across the, the pond. And they, they then had a 60-acre um, golfing ground, if you will. And they played nine holes, but no one knows what those nine holes were. We can't even guess. We've come up with nothing to help us. Tom and I have talked about it. I suspect it was just three holes added to the six-hole routing, but it would be pure guesswork, so we've, we've left that alone. But 1902 was the year that the club changed considerably. Alex Findlay, who was a Scotsman, and uh, had come to this country to be a cowboy out in Nebraska, uh, never gave up his love for golf. After he left uh, Nebraska, he ended up going down to Florida and working with the Flaglers. 
and every time uh, they built a golf course, Alex Finley was involved. And, and he was invited in here. Now, the person who probably invited in him was a guy named Charles Barney Corey, who was a member of the club. And Tom Colombo should probably tell us about how important Corey was because he designed a golf course himself. Yeah, that's right. Uh, just helping Doc Healy with the whole history of Hyannisport. I'm the current golf course superintendent, 13 years. Came across the story of C.B. Corey. He was a member in 1897, right out of the gate. Learned how to play golf, actually, in 1897. Was a wealthy Bostonian who inherited a fortune from his parents who passed young. So basically, he led a life of uh, pretty much leisure way back in the day. Took up golf, like everything he did, he dove in head over heels. And he purchased, he was a landowner right across the bay to a place called Great Island. It was an 800-acre uh, island, actually not really an island, but a barrier beach will take you there. Uh, so C.B. Corey, you know, played golf here for a few years. He was a well-known orthonologist, if I pronounce that correctly. He was more known for his bird collection than golf at, in the early years. He uh, had the largest bird collection in North America, actually. But he traveled in high circles, and over on this island, he had uh, he converted uh, the lighthouse, uh, Point Gammon Lighthouse, which still stands today, more or less into an observatory for birds. And there's several birds that he discovered that, you know, in his travels, not not only here in America, he traveled abroad. And this is this is in the 18, 1880s. But at any rate, he converted a hundred acres over on. Great Island into a 18-hole golf course. And I just kind of kept digging a little bit and found this out. He was a, you know, really loved golf. He summered, or excuse me, wintered down in Palm Beach uh, during the you know, late 1890s. Hung out with Flagler, a gentleman named Henry Phipps, Andrew Carnegie. They all, they all owned property over on Great Island at one point in time in the early 1900s. Uh, the golf course was very well respected, although fairly short-lived. It was his own private club. He, he invited, invited guests over to play, started the Great Island Cup right around 1902 or 1903. And I discovered an article in Country Life in America, of all publications, uh, written by Walter Travis, who at the time was fresh off his victory at the British Amateur, first American to, to win the British Amateur, and played in the Great Island Cup and wrote a, wrote a piece about it. And he was really, really high on the golf course. He compared it to uh, Shinnecock. He compared it to Myopia. But he said, collectively, the Great Island Golf Links is the closest thing to the British Isles that he's ever come across in America. So that was, I thought, was pretty interesting. We, yeah, that's amazing. He wrote a little piece in the Hyannisport book, and uh, the doc said, yeah, let's do it. You know, that's, that's pretty cool history. He also won the 1904 North-South Amateur, so he was a, a, a really good golfer in his day. Played, played on the 1904 Olympic golf team. Um, didn't, didn't finish, but, uh, yeah, he was, he was quite the golfer. He was credited with 100 amateur 
um, championships here in Palm Beach area. The, uh, the course that Tom told us about um, was over on Great Island, which is across Lewis Bay from oh. Hyannisport. And it, it's a great little side story, but it tells why we think Alex Findlay came here. Alex Finley, ah, the professional and the golf architect, was working in Boston for Wright and Ditson as an ambassador of golf to help build their golf business. And we believe that Charles Barney Corey brought Alex Findlay here. That's a stretch. We don't have a piece of paper that says that, but we do know that Arnold Finley, that, that, that Alex Finley designed the nine-hole course on the 60-acre plot that the club then had. And that was 1902. And that yeah. we have figured You know out. what I find extremely fascinating about that, that factoid, and I, I don't know if this is registered for you, but uh, Al- Alexander Finlay was one of uh, America's earliest and most prolific golf course architects, which you mentioned before. Uh, one of his earliest courses uh, was in the United States. It was in Nebraska, where you were talking about him being a cowboy. I believe he, he built a six-hole golf course in the Sand Hills of Nebraska in the early 1880s, which actually preceded St. Andrew's Golf Club. So what you have here, I think, is, is fascinating, is you essentially have the first two great golf course architects to touch Hyannisport were effectively both known by, as the father of American golf. And what is even more amazing to me is if you look at all of the great courses that, that were built in the 1880s, and there's not a lot of them, two of those designers touched Hyannisport Club. Two of the fathers of American golf designed on your club. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I don't know another golf course in the world, let alone the United States, that can boast of that accomplishment. That's, I mean, to me, that's not only historical, but that's amazing. Absolutely. Agreed. Um, Alex Finley uh, had a remarkable uh, res- uh, resume of golf courses. And as Tom said, um, he was a heck of a player. He used to play in, uh, in, in exhibitions with Walter Travis. Um, yeah. In fact, he he and uh, Charles um, uh, Blair McDonald uh, used to argue who hit the first golf ball in this country. McDonald saying he hit one in Chicago, and Finley saying he hit one at Murchison Ranch out in Nebraska. But these questions are fun to consider. But after the nine-hole course was uh, built, the membership uh, enjoyed it. The membership uh, played more rounds. They they attracted more members, and it was a time when really only the wealthy were playing golf. Uh, Francis Wumet hadn't had his impact yet. But the club wanted to grow. And in 1913, they were able to get more land from uh, Charles Marchant, the dairy farmer. Um, and when they did that, they converted their now 100-acre property to an 18-hole golf course. And it attracted all kinds of interesting people. Um, in fact, Francis Wimet came down in 1914, uh, one year after he won the, um, the U.S. Open in Brookline. Um, Hyannisport was, was on the map. Hyannisport joined the Massachusetts Golf Association in 1904, and Hyannisport Club joined the um, United States Golf Association in 1911. And it's a, um, uh, it, the 18-hole the course um, had a lot of enthusiasm. In fact, they had open championships that were reported in the, um, uh, in the, uh, local, in the local papers. And one of the funny ones was that they had a uh, three-day tournament, and it came down to a tie, and 
They flipped a coin. Oh, no way. You can't make that up. Oh, that's fantastic. Do we, do we know who designed that course in 1913? Who expanded, I should say? Was, do, you, do we think it was just like a superintendent or the, head, or the head pro? Is that the guess, or do we know? We do not know. The ideas that Tom and I have kicked around is, you know, maybe Mr. Finley came back, maybe uh, Mr. Corey came back, except he was a little bit of a... Um, he, he had worn out some of his welcome at the club by that point. Yeah. He was a given-to-me-all type of guy. It might have also been uh, the golf professional at the time or the superintendent. It might have been um, someone else from around New England. We don't know. We, we just don't know. It might have been a member with an interest in... Uh, in remember, golf course yeah. design was I mean, not yeah, that happened in the Country Club of Brookline before the 1913 U.S. Open was expanded by members, two members to be exact, that weren't architects and went on to become architects after the great work they did. So it's not uncommon. No, and the, and the architects back then, um, you know, the, many of them just went around the course with stakes, and then the construction folks determined what, uh, what the features of the golf course were. So we don't know, but it was a popular course, and it attracted members, and um, it was on the map. Yeah, you know what I find really fascinating is that so you've expanded 1913 to 18 holes, but it seems to me that Hyannis, the Hyannis Sport Club was always looking to do one better. And I think that kind of goes into saying, I understand that more land was acquired in the 1920s. Do we know what they were planning? I mean, were they planning for that 1930s ex, you know, expansion a decade ahead of time? What, what happened was the, uh, the club was leasing their land um, to date. They only owned the land near the clubhouse, and that was about 26 acres. The club, um, in 1921, bought the entire dairy farm from Charles Marchand. And that, that was why they could have the, and they did that in 1912, and then built the, the 18 holes in 1913. The leases held back progress during the teens. Well, so did the war, and so did... Um, all the other things that went on. But once they owned all the land in 1921, then the club systematically increased length. Uh, they put bunkers in on the course, and they did, but we don't know who designed these, uh, probably members. And, uh, yeah. and by 1930, there was a strong desire to do more, but now the world is changing. The uh, stock market crashed, the Great Depression's coming along, and yet, Hyannisport Club, they wanted to be more of a golf course. So they bought 40 acres at the northwest corner of the property from the Lumbert family. And those 40 acres gave them now a 140-acre golfing grounds. And they engaged Donald Ross and Donald J. Ross Associates because it's very important. He was only here probably once. We can only document one visit by Donald Ross. We don't know who might have been in here, his, uh, his associates, Mr. Hatch or Mr. McGovern. We, we just don't know. Um, we do know that in 1984 or 5 time, mm -hmm. uh, the original Donald Ross drawings, the routing map and the, and the blue drawings of each individual hole were discovered in the, um, the, in the clubhouse. By oh wow! Where if you if, do you know where they were discovered? I mean, usually it's like an attic or something like that. Where they where were they found? Fred Fred Sergula here might know. Wasn't it up in the attic, Fred? 
the uh, no Bob uh, Brown. Bob St. Thomas. So was it in the maintenance facility? Brown. Run, run them back in. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Everybody who has an old club, go check your attic. You might find your plans up there. You never know. Get <laughs> Fred's not on mic. Can you say who where, where, where they were found on mic? Yeah. So the, the plans were, were found in the clubhouse, from what I understand. And the, the old golf superintendent um, surveyed them and discovered, lo and behold, you know, the original hole by hole drawings, Don wow. Ross drawings. Were now in their hands, so they had a better, much better idea um, what his intent was here. Can you give me a rundown of that intent? Like how you, you have an idea of, of, I think, the layouts that were set forth by Reed and Finlay. How does Donald Ross's view of this 140-acre property really start to shine into what you have today? Well, it went in stages. Between 1913 and 1929, the club made several changes, and they introduced some new holes. We don't know who designed them. The, uh, the fourth hole was introduced, and that's now the number one stroke hole, and a fantastic double dog leg cape hole around uh, marsh and water. Um, the 17th hole, which is a short little par three that is uh, hard by the water and always affected by wind. Um, was designed and in 1929 we have a routing of the club and this is before Ross arrived and that included several holes from the Findlay um, in fact I think it was five holes from the original Findlay routing and then it had 13 holes that were not part of that and we compared that routing to the routing map designed by Donald Ross in 1930. And what did you find? Donald Ross um, pretty much changed everything except four holes. He had, um, uh, he had a desire to add length, to add features, to add aesthetic views of the water. He, um, uh, he wanted to move holes a little bit, right to left, which is his want. But he was a little limited by that. In fact, there's half a dozen holes that on an aerial now almost look parallel. Now, the good news is they're not because there's uphill, there's downhill, there's a little bit of variation in the um, approaches to the greens. But the, uh, the 1930 routing map was never fully achieved because after the plans were delivered to Hyannisport Club, the club had a little bit of financial trouble and they said, thank you very much, Mr. Ross, but we're not going to be able to proceed. And that was the end of the Donald Ross Associates Association with the club. But the president at the time, who served from 1924 to 1934, Lucius Frank Payne, was a, um, a pretty interesting man. He, he built houses, he um, was a uh, uh, gardener, and he was just within the Hannesport community. Um, if I can take a Yiddish word, he was a real mensch. And, and, and people liked him, and they, and, and they listened to him. He was president of the club, and he took these plans, and he said, we need to do this. Now, the club said no, but he lobbied the board of directors, and he got them to take a loan, and he put 50 men to work, and they implemented much of the Ross plan. In fact, the club should take a lot of pride in the fact that they employed men on the course during the Depression. 
This was well documented in the Cape Cod Times and the Barnstable Patriot and the papers I read. They even put off some public service projects to make, because the men were already working at the, um, at the golf course. Dr. Healy, I understand that you just published a book on the history of the Hyannis Sport Club. Are there any stories that we should pick up that are in your book that we haven't talked about? Yes. After Frank Payne um, implemented much of the Ross plan on the golfing grounds, the club continued to make changes during the 30s. And the club came up with a final routing pretty much by 1940. And that was documented on a map that Tom Colombo and I found in a box of um, stuff in his uh, superintendent's closet uh, two winters ago. And that map was made by a registered um, Hyannis surveyor, and it, um, it documented where the bunkers were, where the tees were, where the greens were, and the length of each hole. So since 1940, the routing hasn't changed much. There's been some length added. Uh, the course has been restored masterfully by Ron Force in the 90s and in the 2000s. But the, um, the since 1940, uh, the golf course at Hyannisport has been pretty consistent. First of all, I'm an outsider. I came in, I spent time at this wonderful club. I met probably 50 different people, did all kinds of interviews. And it evolved as quote, the golf and tennis club of Hyannis Port, the village of Hyannis Port. And over time that changed for a lot of reasons, but one of them is they needed more members. And in the 70s, they started to take members who didn't live in Hyannis Port. And that was a really important point in time because it gave them new members with new interest in golf, new ideas, and it made them a stronger club and a stronger community. I don't know if every member agrees with that interpretation, but that's what I heard uh, when I spent time here. The most important thing, though, that I noted is the jewel of this club is the golf course. This is a fantastic Donald Ross seaside golf course, and it, um, it offers golfers challenge and beauty and fun. And that, that is, I think, the biggest story of the Anisport Club. Now, I, I met some tennis players who might disagree with that phenomenon, that suggestion. But um, we had them, we asked the tennis group to write a, a chapter in the book, too. And that, um, that seems to be received well by the members. That's great. Fantastic. A golf club, unless you talk to the tennis players. Then it's a tennis club that it happens to have golf. Is that fair? <laughs> well, it, it's very fair, Connor. And, and I do have to add one thing. This club prides itself as a family club, and the relationships of family and long-term friendships are important to, uh, to the members I met. And I, 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 I wouldn't want to stop this podcast without making that very clear. Family and long-term friendships were mentioned to me by just about everybody I interviewed. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Healy. I, I, th- I believe you have a tea time. You need to go to him, am I right? No, I actually have to go for a work event. I, I have uh, a real job. You've got to do some doctor stuff. <laughs> you got to use the MD now. That's what you're saying? Connor, thank you for your time. If I can oh, thank help you. later on in any way, call, email. Absolutely. I'm happy to help I really out. enjoyed this. Good. Thank you. 
Ron, the club discovered Ross's original plans years ago in the clubhouse. How have those plans guided your restoration efforts at the club? Well, they guided them very, very sternly, if we can say. I mean, we tried to adhere to those as much as possible. We did a master plan in 1990, 1991. Uh, Fred Sergio was green chairman at that time. And we implemented his plans to such an extent in that first master plan that we did so, uh, so much so that we um, we were asking to rebuild greens that uh, weren't exactly like what Donald Ross had drawn in 1930 or so, and I believe it was, that was the year. We thought 1935 a while back, but it's 1930. A lot of publications yeah. indicate it was 36, but uh, Fred Sergio, a longtime member, discovered uh, minutes from the board of directors meetings dating back, you know, back to like 1907. And verified the fact that it was 1930 yeah. that Ross yeah, was that, here. And now we just learned that. And we have old scorecards. 35 for all these years. Old scorecards from 32 um, depicting the new layout. Yeah. The so, yardage and everything. so it was, it, the, the plans were, were really good. There were some of the, some of the most interesting Donald Ross greens I had ever seen on plan that he, that I had seen Ross ever do. And this was, at the end of his, you know, the the main era of the 1920s through 1930, of that. So we stuck close to that. There was not much of a, um, a take from the membership and the committees on rebuilding greens that were not close to Ross's plans. There's a lot of really interesting, subtle contours in the existing greens. But there were, and there's some things that still could be done, but we stuck close to that. The, the plans were... Very, very interesting. Uh, and it wasn't until 2008 through 2010 where those plans were significantly implemented with a second master plan. And then a big construction in 2008, then a big construction project that went 08. We did a sample golf hole, the first green complex. And then we went on from there for the next two years and really went through the golf course strongly and got a lot of work done. I'll tell you, Ron, one of the things I seem to really love about this club is that it seems like they do a lot of work during depressions and, and recessions. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's right. Like, You're right in the heart of the Great Depression when Donald Ross is hired and then the uh, the construction of the course up into like 1940. And then in 2008, you say through t- 2010, right in the heart of the Great Recession, and they're working on the course. Kudos to the course. Love it. And it was welcome for forced design too at that, at that timing. <laughs> but it was uh, in in but in nineteen um, you know the, the first plan was done in, in uh, finished up in nineteen ninety one. In the fall of nineteen ninety four, three golf holes were worked on, uh, the bunkering, and we also enhanced some salt marsh and uh, the ecology uh, of salt marsh. And Ron, what kind of work are you doing now? I know you're you're back out there. You're taking a look at the course. What what are you looking to do to bring back Ross? Like, what is how does an architect look down that project and decide, you know, how to best bring back the the best Donald Ross with the plans you have? We've done just this past spring. We changed the bunkering on the Dog Lake Twelve Part Four um, because we were able to move an irrigation main line. Uh, that wasn't done in the in the uh, 
back back in 2008. We did it just this spring, and uh, that's been very positive. We, we took out some trees. We created a sand scrub area with native plants where you find the ball. It's sandy. It's scrubby. There's, and so we're continuing to um, open vistas. We're continuing to uh, enhance the ground game and those kinds of things, such as at that 12th hole. Mm -hmm. But there's a number of things that were in the original master plan that still haven't been done. A few fairway bunkers here and there and things like that. And I would like to tweak a couple of green contours. That's it. Just uh, something we've done before by lifting sod, changing contour. But it's very minor things. But there's still some things from Ross's original vision that we would really like to see implemented. They're not major. The major work was done, you know, roughly ten yeah. years ago. Ron, were those were those um, attributes of design uh, not implemented ever? And and you're looking at the the design and saying, "Wow, that's a really cool strategic feature. We'd like to put that back in." Well, I think we can see the hollow of a bunker. Uh, okay, on so the it left did exist. One, there's there is the hint of yeah. a hollow. They are pretty much implemented now. I want to touch on that in nine. You know, when they built the built the Ross plan in the 30s uh, from the beginning from 1990 I've been amazed at how close most of the work was done to Ross's plans the fairway bunkers were, were put in proper locations um, Mr. Payne changed some of the holes from the Ross plan retaining some of what Alexander Finley did um, some changes elsewhere but uh, by and large there was a lot of similarity solid solid implementation in many parts of the course of what Ross had originally envisioned in 1930. Ron, the course has undergone an amazing transformation over the past 123 years. As the current golf course architect assigned to this historical gem, what can you share about the course? Like, for instance, for those people who've never seen this beautiful club, uh, what is it like to play it? What is it in Ross's design that, that makes it a brilliant architectural gem well like like any truly great golf course it seems like the setting and the mm -hmm. land has to has to dictate that the setting is unbelievable here we're sitting on sunset hill um which suggests exactly what the topography and what you see but the land is gently rolling topography basically ideal for golf no two holes are the same routing direction changes constantly the wind is a major factor the course is also extremely playable there's there there are some forced carries but there that's not a major obstacle uh, the course is very strategic in the way the hazards were placed and uh and also the way the use of the the, the margin of the salt marshes were used on many holes and just the the course conditioning tom colombo has has worked on for these years is really incredible. Uh, it promotes the ground game beautifully oh, that's uh, great. with the wind and without super heaving contours on greens or whatnot. The course, you know, not unlike Newport, which has toned down putting surfs contours. This course is like that as well. It doesn't just beat you up because you can't even make a chip shot because the wind is blowing it, you know, way off the side of the green. So the playability implementing the strategies of Donald Ross, the setting. It's this, this to me 
this place is very, very special. Until I joined the country of Orlando, I had a high end sport golf bag, but the golf balls are starting to pop through the bag pouch there, so I had to get <laughs> yeah, a new one. The course has been called the hardest short course in the United States. How would you describe playing Hyannisport, and does that moniker fit the hard and fast conditions along with the wind? Yeah, that's fair to say. Um, the the wind, wind is like yesterday we had 25 to 30 mile per hour gusts out of the southwest, and today we had 20, you know, 15 to 20 out of the north northwest. So it changes constantly, and you know the speed of the greens obviously is is a big defense, but. The you know conditions right here on Nantucket Sound are, are really flat. They're they're all it's always windy, um, and it's only you know from the tips 6,400 yards to par 71. But like Ron mentioned, every hole's different. Um, the par threes are in different orientations, and you know definitely the green complexes make up for for the shortness of yardage. But, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then I assume Mother Nature and the wind that plays in has a lot to do with how good you can score that day. That's correct. Absolutely. And the course record, you said we just saw the guy earlier. Yes. 63, which is a pretty low wow. score, but that yeah. had to be a very, very still day to do yeah, accomplish that. Was, that was in the summertime, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, did we give that an asterisk? Does that count? Oh. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to listen to the podcast and be like, what? No. You know, another factoid I came about regarding the history, uh, specifically on the Hyannisport Club, was it was a deciding factor to Joe Kennedy purchasing what would later be called the Kennedy Compound in 1927. He loved the club so much that it influenced his decision to buy on Cape Cod. Tom, what, what stories do you have from the Kennedy clan? Well, you know, I've only been here 13 years. I've lived on the Cape most of my life talking with some of the older members a little bit about, you know, what was typical back in the day when JFK was playing golf. You know, loved golf. Uh, let's get back to the beginning. I, I believe they, they rented Joe Kennedy prior to purchasing, uh, rented for, for two seasons or two summers. They you know, wanted to bring the family to the beach, and it was a welcoming community right here on Nantucket Sound. And that, I think, was one of the main attractions and of course, the club um, being both you know a great golf course and socially and tennis, um, so that that's kind of how it started. Uh, the father, Joe Senior, purchased a home, and uh, of course, uh, Senator Kennedy purchased a home in the, the mid '50s, soon to become president. Uh, Edward Kennedy, his brother, also had a home. So they had a what I believe is maybe four homes in, in the so-called compound, but. Uh, JFK loved golf. You know, with a bad back, he rarely played more than six or nine holes, or in this case, primarily five. If you could go over the presidential golf loop of Kennedy. So the presidential golf loop, which is still popular today, if you want to get in a quick five and it's, you know, there's no one coming up the uh, 16th hole, it's holes one, two, 16, 17, 18. So it's, it's, it's on the east side of the marsh, the salt marsh, when you play, um, you know, a full 18 or you're going to play the inside nine, you got to cross the salt marsh at the, at the third tee. So JFK was, was known to just play um, the inside five. And do you still have members that play that five-hole loop? Um, you know, mostly in the off-season when it's busy sure. in the summer. 
perhaps later in the day when it's you know not so busy and they can sneak in five definitely yeah. are they aware it's his loop like is it a well-known i guess fact of the club uh definitely or is yeah. it more at a convenience i think it's a convenient thing you can play quickly and uh you know jfk really enjoyed it there was footage of him playing that was publicized maybe 10 years ago uh kind of a slow motion uh, yeah, a slower motion footage. Uh, footage of him playing uh, the inside five. You know, the, the whole purpose of that video was to send Arnold Palmer to analyze his golf swing. I don't know if right. you know that. But f- from what I understand, it, it, it got in Arnie's hands maybe about 10 years ago. Finally. Oh, he never he didn't see it prior to that. You don't know. He wow. never saw it from my understanding. But uh, he did comment on his swing. Yeah, he, he did say he probably had the, you know, the the best swing of any president. Well, what's funny about that is uh, Arnie was a, a big friend of Eisenhower. I don't know if he would have given him a tip when he was in office. Yeah. <laughs> I think he wanted to kind of keep a, a low profile after Eisenhower. I, I guess he, he you know, played yeah, quite a bit well, of golf. That's what I've heard too, is that the inner nine also served a dual purpose. One was preserving obviously the president's back, but the other is the Democrats ran against Eisenhower and his golf habits when they were running campaign. So, you know, JFK just getting out for a quick five served two purposes. One was, you know, to get uh, the golf addict out there on the course, but also to uh, keep him out of the limelight of playing golf like his predecessor. Sure. Which, I, I mean, I got to love that too, right? Golfers got to golf. Tom, do you have any other like uh, tidbits or historical footnotes from the Kennedy administration and, and playing golf at Hyannisport? Well, I know that, you know, the Kennedys and the Shrivers, is a, it's a huge tradition here, and it continues today. Um, there's many, many family members that enjoy Hyannisport as we speak, and it's, it's their, you know, it's their relaxation, their recreation, place where family can gather right to this day. So that's a huge tradition, the family um, here, uh, the Kennedy family. But, uh, no, it's it's... It's it's well known, and uh, you know they they love their golf course. They love they love the beach. Jeff K actually was a huge huge into boating. He, he did more boating than he did golfing. Tell the cheaper service story. The kid that was paid, he was on um, yeah. payroll for the cheaper service. Yeah. So one of our current members, who was a past president, told me a story about uh, working for the Secret Service out here during uh, Kennedy's administration. His job was wow. to rake rake the seaweed off the beach. <laughs> that was the only thing. He was fi- 15, 16 years old. Can you protect the president from the seaweed, folks? Yeah, basically. Uh, that was his job, raking seaweed. Oh, that's great. And he, he's still a member at the club. And ser- he served as a president uh, back in the, in the 90s. And continues oh, to live here at Hyannisport. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing the history of the Hyannisport Club It's been fantastic. I want to thank all three of you for joining us today. It has been such a great pleasure just to have an opportunity to talk about such a historic club, the club of two founders of American golf, the club that represents golf from the 1880s to 1890s, and two of our early golf course architects and founders of golf. It's been an amazing pleasure to speak with you guys. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. That was that was fun. Okay, so Ron, let's start with you. Tell me briefly how you came to work here 
And then I want to get into the forensics of how you guys decided what you're going to restore and, and talk about the process. So how did you end up coming here? In 1990, we got a call from from the membership, and it might have been from Fred. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have been. It probably yeah. was. And uh, they knew about us. They knew that we were, you know, interested in Donald Ross stuff or part of Donald Ross Society and all that kind of thing. Tom, who's Fred? Fred is our uh, longtime member. Officially, he's our club historian. And he was at he was the Green Chairman at the time, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Ron. So, yeah. So, get the phone call. And Charlie Passios was the golfer superintendent at the time. And I came up here and, and met with them and uh, saw the Donald Ross plans. And then they... They apparently felt that we had a good knowledge of classic architecture and Donald Ross, so they hired us. And so this was the first place we worked at in New England, and it's still an extremely special place to us. It's uh, one of our favorites, absolutely at the top. And when you came, what, tell me about the interview process. What were they looking for from the standpoint of, did they have the plans already, or they had some plans, or... Yeah, it was the first thing, pretty much the first thing we did was they put the plans out on the table. You know, you could tell that uh, there was some, I immediately saw some really special designs in this. Some of these green complexes were some of the most interesting Ross contouring of greens and creative things that, that I had seen him do on, on the drawings. So we, I was immediately, you know, excited about that and wanted to implement those things. So they, when they took us on, we developed master plan implementing those those things what year were the plans yeah the ross plans they they recently discovered their 1930 we were thinking all these years 1930 ross was hired so it was shortly after during 1930 that the club had them in their hands yeah so it's one of the it's one of the depression era construction projects of Mm -hmm. a significant golf course and Tom, when did you start working with uh, Ron on this project? So I, I got here in November of 2007, and the first week I was here, um, we were we were looking for a golf course architect. We were interviewing architects potentially, and literally the first week that was our number one priority was to get going on a master plan. Our current president was was big on it. He's a member at the Country Club and been here at Hyannisport for, for quite some time and uh, formed a, a restoration committee and uh, we were looking at a handful of architects and we really uh, liked Ron and being uh, Ron had worked here in the previous uh, few years. They never really fully got into the first uh, master plan back then and they were revisiting it and wanted to uh, move forward with it. So timing's everything. I was thrilled to be able to get get involved with that. And uh, we got to work first hiring Ron. And Ron developed the master plan and presented it to the club, kind of a ta- town hall meeting. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was probably, what, that was the next summer. That was right in 08. That was in 08 because we, we, we started the kind of a, uh, kind of a, an example of what, what it could be. We, we used the first hole. Um, we rebunkered uh, the green. We tweaked the green considerably. We lifted probably the, the back 60% of the green to Ross's um, intent. And uh, Yeah, it was a real 
there's a real adaptation. Uh, the front 40% of the green was, was nice contour. The back 60% of the green was a ski slope and had bore no resemblance to the drawing. So we retained, we did a 60-40 on it, just rebuilt the back 60, implemented the drawing on that part of the green. Mm -hmm. And uh, it really turned out well. And Fred Sergio paid a, a really good compliment. He said, "There's nobody anywhere in their right mind would not think this is Donald Ross green." Right. That was nice to hear. Having and, the blueprints was 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 key. Right. And, and from a uh, triage perspective, how did you decide to do the first hole? Give me the philosophy of of using that as your showcase. So let me go back. What, how was the member when you did the master plan presentation? How was it, how was it received by the membership? Uh, you have a better answer for that. I wasn't. It was yeah, well received I, for the most part. I think it was well received. There was a there were a handful that didn't want to change anything. Why do you want to change? I asked. You know, why? And we we told them that you know we're not going to change it. We're going to enhance it. Uh, we're going to put put the frame around the picture. We're not going to change what you know and love. That you play every day we're just going to implement you know some some additional bunkering that was never added that are on the plan we're going to uh, make it that much better um, so once we worked out um, you know some of the kinks or once we explained what our intent was uh, most of them went, al went along with it um, but they wanted to see it they wanted to scrutinize it and um, even when we did the complete restoration after 2010, we, 2008, 2009 and 10 is when we did the bulk of the work. Um, they wanted to touch it, feel it, play it, to, to sign off on it. Just a handful. And we got everybody, we got everybody in agreement that it was a great, great job that Ron did and Cape Golf Construction and, and our crew. And yeah. uh, so it went over well. But they, some people can't envision it until it happens. Sign off on it. What are you going to do? Restore it back to the restoration, pre-restoration? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, everyone knows that Ross was here. We had the plans to prove it. Um, Tommy, and because Ross is such a, a brand name, mm -hmm. I think we could lean on Ross's plan a lot as a reason why they should make some changes. Because mm -hmm. it's such it's such a, a high quality thing to do. How much of watch? Let's go back. Uh, either however you guys want to split it. Tell me how much of Ross's plan was implemented up to that point, and how was or wasn't it? Up to two thousand eight. Yeah. You know, up to that second master plan. Correct. It was the bones were were mostly there. A couple of golf holes or different routings. The second hole is short par four, and the 17th are not in the same alignment uh, that the greens were supposed to be in. Mm -hmm. That pretty much, that's the, yeah, those two are the only things that did not get implemented uh, up until, and they're still not changed, you know. Who implemented them? Did you, you? That was Mr. Payne's Mr. Payne. work in the 30s, yeah. Mm -hmm. He used the Finley green. He must have used the Finley green on both. Yeah, he, he used yeah. Uh, the Finley green on, green on 18, yep. 16. And I don't know about uh, 17. 15, our current 15th, which was the 6th green when yeah. it was a 9 hole. But or the 17th seven green hole. didn't exist until Ross's planning. Until right. Ross's that plan. was built sometime, um, sometime between 
1913 and 1930. It was put. We didn't. We didn't. So, like number two, Mr. Payne apparently kept that green. Right. Okay. I mean, Ross wanted to move it up on the hill. On and number two, yeah. Yeah. And uh, even to this day, the restoration committee, when I was hired, loved the second green and didn't want to move it. 17 was closer to the water yep. on the Ross plan. Um, it still is close to the water, but it's, it's probably, you know, 15 degrees yeah. east of what he wanted it to be. Ross's plan had the right edge of the green just fall into the marsh. There's now a bunker on the right, space, card path space. Then the marsh. Mm-hmm. What was the par five we talked about? Was that eleven? Uh, uh, Twelve. Twelve. Tell me, tell me, uh, talk, tell me about a couple of things that are on the Ross plan that you think might be spectacular additions that have not been brought to fruition. Well, okay, that twelfth hole was designed to dogleg a really good dogleg right, hard dogleg right par four. And the green sits now on the near side of a, of a gully, a deep swale running. Oh, you go about know, 20 yards past the green and it drops into it. Ross's plans in 1930 had the green across the gully as a par five. The following hole was a really long, like a 255-yard par three on flat to downhill land. Um, they chose to, they chose to simply go par four instead of par five three for the holes twelve and thirteen. Apparently, Mr. Payne chose to go four four, and they're both really good holes the way they are. They add variety to the golf course. The twelfth green is really interesting. Uh, a lot of intricate contours that are very subtle, um, but that was one that we really pushed for in the the nineteen ninety ninety one master plan. We turned those holes back to Ross's plans. We had a very ambitious uh, restoration plan at that time, but it was too much because it was just too much change uh, for what the club wanted. And they still haven't been. People still love, love those holes, 12 and 13. Are, and there, there is real merit to keeping them. It would be, it would be I mean, like we say, uh, if I owned the place, I'd go back to the five long three thing. Yeah. But you'd have five par threes on the course yeah. if that were the case. Plus the proximity of the 14th tee to the 13th green yeah. would be kind of a dangerous situation if, you know, if it was a par three and balls were landing. Yeah, you'd be launching, air, air mailing into the next tee on 13. So, yeah. Ten minutes. What, what should we know from an architectural and operational and playability sense? Tees and, and Pam, you on, what's your opinion on the tee placement? And, and Tom, give us the philosophy of how are the tees for you as far as? I thought they were fabulous. I thought the fact that you had two choice of two different sets of tees for the board, the support tee player, was perfect. perfect. So, Tom, tell us, and Ron, tell us sure. about the the playability of the course of mix and fun for everybody, even being a, a very difficult course. That's that's a challenge. It's interesting balance. I had a ball on. I'm not. A, I'm not a single handy. Yeah. Well, the open. Sorry, Tom. No, go ahead. The fact that every green is pretty much open at the front. That's right. Makes it really playable. Tom has the ground game going, where you can bump and run. You yeah. keep it under the wind and run the ball up on the green, or you have the option of just flying it into the wind and stopping it on the green. So and they're. It's interesting. 
then it was pointed out earlier that there really aren't there really aren't any forced carries on approach no, shots. There's no frontal bunkers, so it gives you the opportunity to, you know, hit it low, roll it in. So a lot of our older members or even our, our good players, you have that option to uh, keep it keep it low in the wind. Um, very user friendly from the different sets of tees. You can take your take your choice to your to your level um, of skill. But you know, from the from the uh, the juniors, seniors to the to the real good players, it's, it challenges everyone and it's um, enjoyable to play. It doesn't, it doesn't beat you up too bad. How do you categorize this? You categorize this as a links course, Parkland or Combo or Oceanside? What where would you put this up? I like this, I like to think it's a links course. Sorry. And uh, hey, Steve, Steve Gordon. Sorry. I like to say it's a Lynx course. Uh, you've got a, an outward nine to the farthest point of the property, and then an inward nine back to the clubhouse. It's influenced with uh, the proximity to the ocean, um, the whole environment, the setting, the game, how the, how the course is set up. Um, you know, we were talking about it out there today. Uh, some of Ross's greens are, are propped up. You know, if you go over Oyster Harbors, more bolder green complexes. This is more of a low profile, played in the wind, you know, run it in, gives you a lot of options. But I, I would I would say it's more of a link style golf course. Tom, uh, Ron, how does this compare? Give us, as part of the portfolio, the inland portfolio, what kind of things as we start for up, what should we know that I haven't asked? Uh, well, what what's going to happen in the future, maybe? Yep. And that's there's we've started to do some further tweakings of the golf course, trying to implement. In the future, we're hoping to implement some more of the final bunker reinstallations that haven't been done that were been envisioned 30 years ago. Actually, when we started, so there's some fairway bunkers and a few other tweaks and things going on. We're always looking at trees and vistas we've been talking mm -hmm. about a major vista you know from top of the hill on the 14th hole and the 12th hole all the way down to the marsh past the fifth so we're we're kind of that's in discussion right now there, yeah. there could be a, a pretty good tree clearing uh, chunk out of some woods there at the time mm -hmm. so we are um we're pretty much constantly evaluating Tom just keeps bringing stuff up to, to the committee and just keeps keeps the ball rolling, which is yeah. very welcome for us. We um, had uh, initially, you know, as part of the process with forming a restoration committee, a good cross-section of the membership, men, women, low handicap, high handicap. That was the one thing that um, in regards to bunker, putting bunkers back that are missing, some of the shorter bunkers, the four bunkers, um, were left out. Um, the feeling was they're, they're going to penalize the, the shorter hitter. But the more we, we look at the course, we feel that some of these bunkers should be put back in as intended. Uh, not only for playability, but you know, in some cases they're, they're saving bunkers, like bunkers on the edge of top of the hill on one, for instance, prevents a ball from going down further into the into the, the wood line so it would essentially save a ball. But some of these some of these bunkers are you know, I feel that uh, 
we're hopeful that we'll we'll get permission to, to put them in in the near future. And there's some one or two controversial ones that are authentic, but you may remember teeing off on the par five ninth after the par three by the marsh, mm-hmm. and there's a you hit up blindly over a hill. Ross had a bunker right at the top of that hill, mm-hmm. cut in, and that was very common for a classic architect, not just Ross. Yeah. To put a, a kind of a guide bunker, just kind of feel your way around the golf course on that tee shot to hit over an obstacle. Bunkers and bunkers placed in these odd, would seem illogical to the modern eye sometimes. Those bunkers placed in these odd places, such as four bunkers close, these or bunkers between a landing area and a green, they're intended to enhance the game, not to hurt people. They're intended to reward a good tee shot give you a feel for where to hit the ball, things like that. So, All right, gentlemen. Yeah. I think our time is up. Thank you. Okay, just Great. four or five. Thank okay. you. Good job. Great Thanks. job, guys, fellas. Great job, Vaughn. I hope you found the history of the Hyannisport Club as fascinating as I did. The only club that I am aware of has three of American golf's founding fathers listed as contributing architects. A special thanks to Vaughn Halyard for closing out this podcast. I was unfortunately pulled away on parental duties, and Vaughn brought the podcast home like a major champion. The Hyannisport Club has been called the toughest short course in America. It was designed by three of American golf's founding fathers, in John Reed, Finlay Douglas, and Donald Ross. It was a place where President John F. Kennedy could retreat from public office, if only for five holes. But more importantly, it was and is the golf and yes, tennis retreat of its membership, a membership that feels more like a family than a club. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis.